my loved one perhaps was using porn, maybe engaging in the kinds of sexual behaviors in the pornography or with other individuals that are totally against anything I would ever agree to or consent to. Welcome to the P Word podcast brought to you by Naked Truth Project. We aim to open eyes and free lives from the damaging impact of porn. And this podcast is going to equip you to talk about and tackle pornography in your church and in your community. This is another episode of the P Word podcast. Uh, My name's Ian Henderson. I'm the founder of the Naked Truth Project. And I'm Kat Etherington. I'm the recovery director. And throughout the podcast, you're going to be hearing a little bit from myself and Kat, but also extracts from the P Word conference and different speakers, experts and storytellers. And our subject, our topic for this is how does the church help those who have been betrayed? Yeah. And I guess, you know, even as we put that topic out there, there will be people who are wondering, well, is is porn use betrayal? Um, and maybe that's a new kind of concept for them. Absolutely. And it's fair to say as well, this is part of your own story, that's Kat, right. um, that you have been a betrayed partner. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, it was just not something I never, ever thought about. I never conceptualized that the person that I was in a relationship would be obsessively or compulsively looking at porn. It just literally never occurred to me. And I, I wonder if you know, my naivety was that I wasn't much of a porn viewer myself. And, you know, that had never really been a part of my life, maybe a couple of times when I was really young and, you know, the the magazines were doing the rounds. But it just had never occurred to me that that was a conversation that I needed to have or that that it, it might be something that would happen. And it literally blew up in my life when I was using my partner at the time's computer. A little message popped up that said, um, you need to delete some memory. You know, the memory was full. I needed to delete some files and I clicked on it and I found some chat logs um, that linked to explicit websites. And then I started to look and I found um, just reams and reams and reams of pornography sites in the in the search history. And I, yeah, like I said, I would never have expected that. And Studies would say, and your story, I guess, would say that for those individuals, that feels like betrayal in in a similar way to if someone had had a, a kind of physical affair with another another individual. Absolutely, and you know, I I think it. I guess having walked through that and experienced it myself, it blows my mind that people struggle to understand that that's a betrayal because, um, you know, what I felt in that moment was, wow, this is the man that I love that, um, you know, is supposed to be committed to me and I'm sharing him with literally thousands of other people. And, you know, that might not be including any physical contact, but it felt just like it was the same. Um, And I guess the most immediate response that I had to that was what's wrong with me what's wrong with me that I'm not enough for for this guy and so you might be listening right now and perhaps you're listening as a user and even this conversation might feel a little shaming for you you're a little bit like no I, that's not I, what are you trying to say I'm I'm what I'm someone who's really hurt my partner or whatever and 
if you've not considered that, then, you know, this will probably be a really important episode for you to listen to. Not, we don't want to shame you. We don't want you to feel even worse about yourself. Uh, but we do want you to understand that it's not just about you. And this problem that you have, yes, it's impacting you and it's damaging you and your life and your future and all that God wants you to be as a user. But it's also impacting uh, the people you're in relationships with. And if you're married, uh, your spouse, or if actually even if you're a parent, uh, you know, it, it ripples out beyond yourself. And so if you're a user listening to this, please don't mishear what we're saying. We want you to understand this. We want you to be informed about this. But maybe you're listening to this as a, a leader. And again, it's perhaps never occurred to you that part of your role, part of your responsibility, part of how the church can help is to offer support and to walk alongside not just users of porn, but partners of, of users. And so that's what this episode is going to try and do. So we're going to listen now to an extract from one of our speakers from the P Word conference, which is uh, Barb Stefans. And uh, she's just going to kick off. We'll hear a few extracts from her explaining why this is betrayal. Betrayal happens when someone who is the closest to you is the one who hurts you the most. And that's what partners experience. This is the person they had every reason to anticipate would be on their side and have their back and protect them. And when this thing that we call discovery occurs, that's when they find out that their image of who this person was was not complete that there's this other part of this person and behaviors going on that really put the spouse at risk. And that's the part that's traumatic. All of a sudden the partner realizes, I have been at risk and didn't know it. There was some jeopardy that I was experiencing. My loved one perhaps was using porn, maybe engaging in the kinds of sexual behaviors in the pornography or with other individuals that are totally against anything I would ever agree to or consent to. And so Barb actually was one of the first, if not the first, uh, person to do some research and some study around uh, the impact on a partner when someone has got a sex addiction or secretive sexual behaviour. That's right, isn't it, Kat? Yeah, that's right. And, and that, I think, came about because there was this kind of history where there was an assumption that if you are married to an addict, there must be something wrong with you. Um, and when Barb started to work with women who had experienced these um, betrayals, she, uh, because she was clinically informed and she had a background in domestic violence and trauma, she began to notice that the symptoms that she was seeing looked more like trauma than they did codependency or whatever the sort of prevailing paradigm at the time was. And so she got curious as good researchers do, and she did some research. And the research that she did, which was back in 2015 or 16, um, actually showed that just short of 79 or just around the 79% mark of the women that she surveyed um, met all of the diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, with one exception, which was 
that um, the thing that had happened to them wasn't life-threatening, um, which I think is quite interesting because, you know, what we're beginning to learn and understand about trauma is that it's not really about the thing that happens to you. It's really about what the impact of that is on you. Mm. And perhaps a lot of you, again, as listeners, will have had training for other reasons around being trauma-informed and understanding different things like ACEs or just being more trauma-informed. But let's hear Barb talk a little bit about those symptoms. It's very complex. It's very difficult. And partners can find themselves confused. They don't know what's happening to them. All of a sudden, they don't feel like themselves again, and they're experiencing symptoms. Um, They're having trouble in terms of managing their emotions. Um, They're having trouble physically. They um, are tired all the time. Perhaps they're losing weight. They're not able to eat. Um, Emotionally, they feel angry. They feel rage they've never felt before. They feel sad. They're depressed. They're numb. They're starting to experience sexual symptoms where they don't feel safe enough to be sexual in the relationship. And they may get messages from people outside the relationship or even within the relationship that they have to be sexual when everything in them says, I can't be, this doesn't feel safe. And so that can be a very, very difficult place for the betrayed spouse, especially if they're getting outside pressure to be sexual. And then another area I know that you're going to have talks on during this conference is spiritually. So perhaps they feel cut off from God. Perhaps they think, I did everything that a good Christian person is supposed to do. How could God allow this to happen to me? Why didn't he protect me? So that's a lot of different ways that a partner can experience this severe shock this level of distress, and this level of trauma. So that's really interesting. And as I say, maybe you're listening to those symptoms and you've seen those in people's lives for other types of trauma. But what what have you experienced, Kat, uh, yourself? And what have you seen with, with clients that you've worked with? Yeah, I mean, I have to tell you that as a person who has lived through this experience, the impact on me was so much greater than I could have ever imagined. And and I remember turning up on the doorstep of, of a friend in the middle of my emotional turmoil. And I remember saying to her, it feels like something is alive in my stomach, just this constant um, kind of anxiety, hypervigilance um, would be the sort of trauma-informed term that you would use around that, where the world just felt really unstable stable you know I I really thought I knew this guy and who he was and so when when he's not who I think he is that really destabilizes your your sort of sense of reality generally so I'm like well what who else is not who I think they are and and who am I if if those people aren't and those relationships aren't what I thought that they were so um, I think for me in the beginning it was just this this hypervigilance this kind of constant checking of the computer to see if there was more. I set up um, profiles on dating apps and tried to kind of catch him out that way. Um, And all of those things are what we would conceptualize as kind of reality testing behaviors. I'm just trying to figure out what is the world I live in that feels like it's just been turned upside down. And so, you know, betrayed partners will tell you in the first month, 
they feel crazy. They don't know who they are. They their behaviors all over the place. They're doing things they don't they don't feel comfortable with, but they're doing them anyway. They're obsessing over stuff, um, and it's really all about that sort of loss of safety. They're just trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. When I thought I knew, and now I don't know anything. Yeah, it's interesting what you say there around the you know. Uh, who are they? You know, that 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 spouse. And what about and maybe even can I trust other people who I thought I could trust? And I guess that might even, you know, your eye may even turn upwards there as well. Can I can I trust God? Yeah. You know, where where was God in all this? Absolutely. Uh, and that's perhaps another thing, particularly for for Christians who are facing this for the as as they've had, you know, a disclosure or a discovery, suddenly they're like, oh my goodness, how how, how does that affect their faith, do you think? Yeah, it definitely does. And I was a fairly new Christian when I had this experience. So my faith was rocked significantly before I'd even really gotten kind of deep in there. Um, and, you know, for me, there was this sense of, um, I'm just learning to trust God. I'm, I, you know, he's, I'm just learning to, to kind of let him work in my life. And what is this? Like, and it felt really unfair that as a new Christian, I, you know, I was going through something so, so difficult. And I think, you know, a lot of Christian women, their marriages and their relationships, and, you know, I appreciate this doesn't just happen to women, but those are the, the primary sort of demographic that we see. There's there's often a sense that their marriage or their relationship is spiritual in nature. You know, they feel like they've made some spiritual commitments. They maybe they maybe they feel like this is the man that God chose for them. So how do you separate that out? You know, if this is the man that God chose for me, does that mean that he knew he knew this was gonna happen? He didn't protect me from it. So there's all sorts of spiritual stuff that comes up. And our next extract talks a little bit about that, doesn't it? Yeah, so we're going to hear from Lachelle Burkett. Um, Lachelle runs a ministry called Hope Redefined, which walks alongside Christian women um, dealing with betrayal trauma. And she's going to talk about um, how faith can be affected. You have some women who, when this betrayal and I don't, I don't want to sound over-dramatized because it truly feels this way. When this betrayal shatters their world, many of them will also put, they put everything in the same bucket. And so everything that's been betrayed, including their relationship with God is like thrown out the window. Mm -hmm. So those women, we would say they go into a crisis of faith in regards to not knowing what is solid, what is, what, what is there anymore. I tend to see this happen most often in women who are in a denomination or a belief system that their relationship with God is transactional. So if I put in the work and I'm the good girl and I show up as a virgin and all these things, then I should receive back, right? So it's a transactional. So when the transaction doesn't work out, that's when the real crisis of faith starts to happen because she's going, wait a minute, I dotted all the I's crossed all the T's, this should not be happening. And so oftentimes I will hear women asking those questions, like how could God have done this to me when I've had all this experience or all this, um, I've done it all the right ways and I've done, yeah. So there's that side of the crisis of faith. And then I hear on the other side, women who live in a relationship with Jesus or with God, and it's a very relational type of relationship um, or faith, they tend to grow closer, but it's not external. And that's a part that's missed a lot. So their faith becomes an internal process where they're wrestling with God through a lot of different things. 
And I think it's important for us as uh, the body of Christ to really understand that there's there's two variables here, but they both have need and they both have great need in understanding what it looks like to trust God after betrayal, because that for sure is a place of impact for them. So that was Lachelle. You can, of course, hear the whole talk at the website, pwordconference.com. So we're describing an individual who has discovered uh, or it's been disclosed that there's been maybe years of this secretive behavior, this this betrayal, um, and, and that's caused these sort of uh, traumatic symptoms. And you sort of said, you know, people feel they're crazy, they're questioning reality, they're questioning themselves, their partner, God himself as well. And so I guess that means that as church leaders, you know, your response to that individual is going to be really important, isn't it? And and there's going to be some things you can say in these moments that, that could be super helpful or, or could actually be harmful uh, because someone's already vulnerable. They're already fragile. And so, you know, for example, just being told, why don't you just, you know... Um, move on or whatever, um, or forgive him or, uh, you know, there even things that maybe people will need to hear at some point later down the road. Yeah. Might not be ready to hear now or even, even just attending church on Sunday for, for lots could feel very, very, they could feel very fragile in that place. Yeah. Any advice for leaders then as they perhaps meet a couple, they've heard about the user and they've tried to signpost and support the user. What, what does it look like to say the right thing? to support, to signpost a, a partner. Yeah, you know, as you were talking then, it just occurred to me how humiliating it is as a partner um, to know that somebody else knows that what feels true to you at the moment would be to to know that somebody else knows that you're not good enough for your husband, to know that somebody else knows that your husband behaves in ways that, that send those kinds of messages um, to you. And so actually a lot of betrayed partners really struggle just to be present in an environment where somebody knows that because they feel so vulnerable and so humiliated and they don't want you to see what they believe is true about them at that moment in time. And so I think betrayed women, and and I guess this is true of men, although we don't know as many of them, they need a lot of grace, lots and lots of making it okay for them to just be where they are. Um, I think there's this sense of which we want to rush through the process and we, you know, we feel okay about it. And so we want them to feel okay about it. And and actually, if I'm honest, maybe it looks like she's making it worse at the at the moment in time. You know, he's just, and this is of, often what happens in church is that he's being kind of celebrated for being really brave and coming forward and all that's great. And she's on the sidelines going, are you serious? Like, this is really destroying me. And so I think, you know, there needs to be attention on her and there needs to be a lot of grace and understanding um, because a big mistake is to say, you know, gosh, you're you're really quite angry, Christine. What's going on there? Um, you know, we don't want to start pointing out her sin um, in the moment where she is reeling in the wake of somebody else's. Yeah, yeah. Again, just to say that uh, this is part of what we offer in terms of support for partners and spouses. And so, you can, without question, uh, signpost our programs. There's, of course, other things out there, but, uh, you know, we've been working with partners for a number of years now, and we've got a great team who not only can 
come at that with the expertise, but as you've heard from Kat, you know, can come at that with with a real understanding because of their own experiences too. Uh, and so I wonder whether as we move on a little bit in this, a really important thing to talk about, because I think it's a common thing that a church leader or, you know, a small group leader, someone who wants to help a couple, perhaps it comes up fairly early on uh, is, you know, what does forgiveness look like? Yeah. Because that kind of feels like that's the, you know, that's the end goal. That's where we want to get to. We want to get to a point where, you know, he he can be forgiven uh, as, as the user by God and he can forgive himself and she can forgive him and she, you know, she feels okay. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's the tied up in, with a bow ending right. that, that we're, we're wanting. And actually that's what God longs for in terms of our ability to receive and to give forgiveness. Mm. He wants us to receive his forgiveness and he wants us to be people who give forgiveness. You know, we know that. Uh, and Jesus models that and tells us that. Well, this is where that same shame and pressure turns up that we talked mm. about in previous episodes of, you know, wanting to look like a good Christian. So a lot of women who are reeling in the aftermath of betrayal are at the very same time going, well, I I know I really should forgive him. And they're, they're trying to do that. Um, but often they're trying to do that at the expense of creating space for their own healing. Mm. Now, P-Word conference, this last one, this was a topic you spoke on, actually. Yeah. Uh, and so people can go and listen to your whole talk around forgiveness and what does forgiveness look like in this, this context. But what do you kind of feel are perhaps the first steps then for people as, as, they, as you say? You know, know that that's what they want to do. But perhaps that's just uh, what, what does forgiveness even look like? What does it mean for a betrayed Partner. Right. And that is the first step, actually, is to begin to define that because actually there are many, many different definitions of forgiveness, what it means and what it doesn't mean. And, you know, I guess in, in a lot of Christian circles, there's this idea that we forgive and we forget and we never talk about it again. And when you've got trauma that just isn't going to work. And so um, I think that is the first step is to sit down and talk about, okay, what do we mean when we talk about forgiveness? What's important for you um, and what feels achievable right now and what's not? And so, you know, we do a lot of kind of what forgiveness isn't alongside what forgiveness is because there's an assumption that forgiveness is also trust. It's also reconciliation. It's also let's never talk about this again. And some of those things are not possible and they're not helpful and they're not healthy and they don't have to be barriers to restoration in the relationship. Thing is that forgiveness is not usually an event that just happens one day that she just chooses to forgive and we all live happily ever after. That's mm. just not realistic. I know in your talk, you talk a little bit about kind of some of the things you chose to do to kind of demonstrate not only to your husband, the forgiveness that you wanted to be living out, but probably demonstrating to yourself mm. as well. And you talk about washing his feet, for example, as a practice that was a kind of outworking of what you were wanting to to be doing, even though you may not have been feeling it and right. stuff. I mean, say a little bit about that. Yeah, and I, I think I will probably remember that day for the rest of my life. Um, 
there was, and, and you know, as I remember that, there's this battle around, like, I really want to forgive him. And, you know, I, I had a husband who was deeply repentant and who wanted to make things better. And he did everything that I asked him to do. And he went to therapy and he went for prayer and he did all of the things. And still I had this daily struggle of, I really want to forgive him, but I feel really unsafe and I feel like I can't trust him. And I don't know if this is going to happen again. And I would get triggered over, I remember getting triggered over a loaf of bread and thinking he was cheating on me. And, you know, my mind, my brain is doing its thing and my heart is trying to forgive him um, because trauma is like a brain injury. Mm. Um, And so there were many occasions where I would extend forgiveness to him. But on this one occasion, I I, I wanted to offer a gesture to him. And so I, I washed his feet as my act of forgiveness. And then probably the next day or within a few days, I was angry again and I was, you know, untrusting again. And so, you know, I had to learn some of that stuff as I went. I think I really hoped that I would wash his feet and it would be like a, a, a biblical life light, lightning bolt kind of a moment and that would be it for me. Um, but I realized that forgiveness was a choice I had to make over and over again and it was a process I had to find grace for myself in and you know maybe long term people ask me you know do you ever really fully forgive and I think that is possible um, but I also think it takes time and it takes work. Um, I can't remember who says this um, but as we were kind of revisiting some of the talks from the events someone did (laughs) where they said perhaps one of the things that, that, again, as churches, we're quick to do is perhaps suggest kind of like couples counselling. Right. You know, like that's one of the kind of like, okay, you guys, you need to, you need to be working on this together. And actually, this, 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 this expert, for whatever reason, they were saying, actually, don't rush into that. You know, it's actually really helpful initially, maybe for you know the one the two individuals to to get support and help in different places but not necessarily to go straight into yeah. couples stuff what what are your thoughts around that yeah and i think that um you know traditional couples therapy for instance will take the position that problems in a relationship are co-created and so it will and it will look at things like communication and conflict and when when one person is completely blindsided by another person's secretive behavior there's there's no way that they could possibly have contributed to that, right? And, you know, we always make the point that addiction is a person problem, not a marriage problem. It might mm. create a problem in a marriage, but, you know, if somebody as is often the case, if somebody brings their pornography addiction with them, then how can I possibly be responsible for that? Um, and so any any sort of modality that's going to take the view that, well, you guys need to figure out how you created this problem together is going to be a real, real challenge for, for the partner. With that said we are beginning to develop modalities that are specific to this demographic that that offer something a little bit uh, more helpful. So, you know, my colleague um, Carol Sheets is, is training people in the early recovery couples empathy model, which is specific to this sort of people group which is focused on rebuilding trust on truth telling and that stuff can be really helpful so it's not like no to couples work but it is no to couples work that's gonna create that sort of idea that you co-created a problem yeah or even straight away perhaps and and that's another thing i guess isn't it um another thought or question because you mentioned your husband being in that place of 
repentance and and kind of a willingness to do whatever it takes. Yeah. Um, that's not always the case either, is it? And, no. and particularly with addiction, as we know, there's often a lot of minimizing what something is. Maybe there's a little bit of kind of damage control or whether you found out about some of it, but, you know, yeah. That there's not even a full disclosure, um, and or there's is it really that big a deal? And I don't understand why you're so upset about it. Right. Or, or there's initial remorse, but not necessarily what looks like repentance. Doesn't look like actually there's an understanding of uh, wanting to take a different path. Yeah. Um, how how does forgiveness look in that setting? And this this would be true of 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 any issue right. right but but when someone is kind of like okay well look i said sorry surely that should be enough yes why are we still talking about this one of the most profound things somebody said to me about that when i was journeying my own recovery from addiction um which involves a process of forgiveness as the person with the addiction um and, and, you know, there were places where I would struggle with that. And what somebody said to me that, that really impacted me at the time was that you can forgive from another address. And I'm like, oh, okay. So that helps me with that definition of what forgiveness is. So it doesn't mean that I have to live with you to be able to forgive you. And in some cases, it's not wise and it's not safe to continue to live with a person who has an addiction. If they don't want to give that up, if they are endangering you, you know, right at the beginning, of this season of the podcast, we heard Paula Hall talking about um, tolerance and escalation. And so addictions don't get better. They get worse unless you get into recovery. And so to continue to live with someone who has an active addiction means that it's going to get worse. Um, and, and I don't think it's wise and I don't think it's kind to ask people to continue to do that. And so for some people, you can forgive from a different address. And that's going to feel quite controversial for some people to hear and think about. And again, maybe one of the reasons that feels controversial is because we still are on a journey of understanding how traumatic porn use is. Yeah. <laughs> so again, if we were to switch it and say, okay, are you living with uh, someone who has domestic, there's domestic abuse, for example, right. in the household, perhaps that would feel... Uh, you know, you would start thinking about safety in in a different way, and you would start. So again, there's, that's that's just an interesting thing of of yeah. uh, us as a church uh, and as carers of people and and all that sort of stuff of beginning to understand what does abuse look like what does damage and hurt look like what does safety look like yeah let me just jump in Ian and say um you know I'm glad that you're bringing up the the issue of safety and you know that languaging around abuse and again you know I I'm aware that some of even this discussion is brand new um but what we haven't really talked about so far is that you know on the surface it might sound extreme like here's a guy who looks at pornography and his wife is betrayed and she's traumatized and and she might need to move out and whatever that that might look like but i guess what i would want people to understand is you don't have an addiction for 25 years that your wife doesn't know about without there being some abusive behavior that is utilized to control her experience of reality. So most betrayed women that you talk to will tell you variations on a bunch of stories about how they thought they knew something, they asked and they were lied to repeatedly, they were um, kind of manipulated in terms of what they thought they knew, their sense of reality was distorted by the 
person that they loved most. Maybe there has been violence. And in fact, there is evidence that people who are regularly looking at pornography are more likely to act in ways that are violent physically and sexually. Um, there has often been coercion and control. And so, you know, we don't have time to unpack all of that right now. But I would really encourage anyone who's sort of struggling with those kinds of concepts around how do we keep a woman safe to go listen to some of the talks from P Word. In particular, Lisa Taylor unpacked the link between pornography use, pornography addiction and domestic violence. And, and you know, we're really beginning to understand more and more and more what the correlation between those things is. And so when we're talking about safety, we're talking we're not just talking about, you know, he looks at porn. Yeah. And again, just to re-emphasize, we're talking about there is a spectrum here. Of course. There's a spectrum of porn use, you know, and in one of the other episodes, we talked about the difference between, you know, an addict and someone who right. struggles with looking at porn and that's a moral conflict for them because of their faith, for example. And equally, you know, there, you know, there's a big difference in, in even a spectrum of the impact it can have on a, on a partner right. as well. Right. Um, but, how do we move on from from this point? And we've we've used this word safety. Um, you used earlier when describing one of the symptoms of betrayal trauma, kind of a destabilization and just everything mm. feeling like it was completely insecure and destabled. I I know that one of the kind of first steps in kind of walking with with partners is this this idea of trying to create safety and stabilization for them as one of the first things that's that right. needs to happen. And obviously that's something you would journey with in a kind of clinical way, but what, is there a pastoral way of doing that as well? How do we create as churches safety and stabilization for partners at yeah. the very beginning of their healing journey? I think, you know, the best way to do that is to ask her, like what what feels unsafe to you and you know we're not talking about physical safety necessarily of course there might be some physical safety risks not least you know if there is any escalated behavior you're talking about STI testing you're talking about um, you know how is the person with the addiction responding to getting caught because sometimes that's very traumatic for everybody um, so you certainly would look at physical safety but more more commonly you're talking about emotional spiritual safety you know is the home a safe environment um, and the answer to that is almost like almost certainly going to be no in the sort of immediate traumatic aftermath of a discovery or a disclosure but if you ask women what's going on at home what's that like you're going to begin to hear oh you know we can't contain our emotions we're we're blowing up at each other um, and a lot of that initial safety work is about trying to create some boundaries, some healthy boundaries around um, who gets to talk when. And, you know, if you ask couples, when do you have your best conversations? It's almost never at 11 o'clock at night, but that's when they're arguing and that's when they're screaming at each other. And so, you know, you're looking at that stuff. Can we create space and time to have these kinds of conversations when we can do it at our best? Can we get support on board for that mediation? Um, are the kids safe? What are they witnessing? Um, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then lots and lots of lots of emotional regulation. You know, maybe she needs people that she can just vent to and tell how it is. And that's what, a lot of what we do in our groups. But she also needs, just like he does, you know, um, we talked about coping strategies. She needs some of that right now because her life is in crisis. Mm. 
That's really, really helpful. And I, I imagine this episode, maybe this is one of the first episodes that you've listened to, if you've listened to the others, where you're saying, oh my goodness, okay, this feels like new ground. Yeah. This this feels like something I've not really thought about before and this maybe feels a little overwhelming because of it. And I, you know, I'm, I'm just a small group leader. What am I <laughs> supposed to do? Um, how, do I, how do I navigate someone through safety? Um, and again, just to remind you, we as an organisation are here. We are trying to provide some of those those kind of uh, support mechanisms and, and groups and, and places uh, where people can journey and work this stuff out. And perhaps for you as a small group leader, the thing you're going to do is you're going to be praying for them. You're going to be praying for her. You're going to be listening really, really well. You're going to be reflecting back what she's saying and and making sure she feels seen and that it's not just all about him. You know, yeah. these these things that might seem insignificant um, huge. are huge, aren't they? Yeah. Particularly if that person is is getting more kind of professional help somewhere else. You you become just a person that that reinforces that uh, you know they are valued, they matter, that you love them, you're caring for them, and you will you will be there when the days when they feel like they're a mess, right. and the days when they feel like uh, they're doing a bit better. And I would also suggest that you do everything you can to to just talk about what progress you see as you see it. You know, because again, I imagine yeah. a lot of the time it feels like I'm getting nowhere fast. I'm exactly in the same state as I was, you know, six months ago. Yes. But often that's not true. And uh, I think even just to be able to say, look, you know, you might feel like it's you're not changing and it's not changing. But these are the things that I can see. I can see how you've gone stronger in this way and you've yeah. you've been brave in this way. Um so there, I think some of the ways that um, together with some some professional support and then some maybe just some pastoral care uh, partners can be seen. And I think yeah. that's a big part of this is they felt voiceless, they felt that's unseen right. for so long. And, you know, just as you were talking, I was thinking about a couple of our um, coach practitioners who, um, through their journey through addiction and betrayal, actually um, encountered a new version of Jesus than the one they had previously met and became Christians through that journey. And um, one of the things that Fran would say about that is that... Um, you know, just as you're saying, you know, calling out the progress, actually what people did for her was they called out the ways that they could see God working in her life gently and not in a way that she had to necessarily see, but just kind of observing, oh, look, look at that little moment. Um, and for her, that was uh, restorative in her faith. And so, you know, from a spiritual perspective, let's be the eyes for people to say, look, look what God is doing. Not in a way that they feel like they have to agree with, with because they might not be able to do that yet but just gently because that can be transformative too so this may have been a difficult episode for you for lots of different reasons maybe as a user you found it hard to listen to because it's just reminded you of some of the hurt that perhaps has been caused maybe as a partner you've listened to this and you've realized that this is me and i've not necessarily dealt with it uh, or maybe as a leader this just has 
felt quite overwhelming and new and uh, you're just feeling, oh my goodness, have I made mistakes in the past with couples who've been to see me and perhaps I should have done that better. Let's, let's just agree together that the past has happened, but let's, as we move on, seek to, to just ask God to help us be better at supporting partners. Uh, And so I hope this is useful for you. And as we have said, you can get a lot of the talks and a lot of the information in much more depth if you go to the pwordconference.com. And thanks for listening. This is the P Word podcast brought to you by Naked Truth Project. If you'd like to learn more about our work, please visit nakedtruthproject.com.